0: All heard or experienced the laws of unintended consequences, like this man who was driving his pickup truck home one night in the mountains of New Hampshire and he hit a moose. And when he came to the paramedics and the authorities, they cleaned up the mess and they picked him up and they determined that he was okay to drive and so they allowed him to go home and as he was Getting it together, he asked them, and he said, would you just help me to put the moose in the back of my pickup truck? And the reply came from them, the warden. He said, the moose herd is the property of the state. And so the man said, is that so? And he then proceeded to sue the state of New Hampshire for letting its herd loose on state highways (laughs) without an orange reflective belt, no flashing wide load lights, and not in a clearly designated moose crossing with appropriate signage and lighting. And he won. <laughs> <laughs> and he got a new pickup truck as a result. Well the state legislature voted the next year to allow people to keep their roadkill. <laughs> the point of the story is this is that even the state has sometimes falls prey to the laws of unintended consequences. And that's exactly where we find Solomon in our last installment of a study of his life tonight. We see him reaping the unintended consequences of the foolish choices that he made. Where we left him, he's sitting in an ivory throne. He's surrounded by trinkets and treasures of gold. Silver was much too underclassmen for Solomon. He's protected by multiplied thousands of horsemen and chariots. And he's enjoying the company of a, a thousand women, 700 wives and 300 concubines. I can't help but picture Job of the Hut. you know. I mean, really, who is this guy and who does he think he is? And all of that in clear violation of what God said was to be the behavior of a king that represented his name. And so this man now is going to reap from this. He was told that his wives would turn his heart away if he should multiply them. And we found in our last study that that's exactly what happened. His wives turned his heart away from God. He built shrines to pagan deities on the Mount of Olives, which is a stone's throw from the temple that he had built from the Lord. And he literally laid the foundation for the eventual destruction of the nation that he is the greatest king of. And so as we pick up tonight in verse 9 of chapter 11, we see the aftermath of Solomon's behavior, and it's the unintended consequences of his poor decisions. So five things in the remaining uh, verses of this chapter tonight that we see that Solomon reaped after what he had sown. And it tells us in verse 9, it says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord had commanded. What we see here in this man Solomon's life is that someone who had been so prominent, so filled with wisdom, so endued with giftedness, is in a position now where the God who formerly had loved him, while he still loved him, But he is now angry with him. And we're told that the reason for that anger is, first of all, because his heart was turned away from the Lord. And that happened after two appearances of God as he personally met with Solomon, warning him specifically of the very thing that would happen within his life. And that's an interesting thing to think of, that God saw this weakness in Solomon early on, warned him of it. And now Solomon gives himself to it, and it says that God was angry with him. Why is God angry? What does God lose because of Solomon's behavior? I mean, he's in heaven. He can raise up a new king. He can do a new thing. What is it to God, and why is God angry? Here's why God is angry. First of all, he's angry because God loved Solomon. The very first thing that we're told about Solomon when he was born is that the Lord loved him. You'll recall that Solomon was the offspring of David and Bathsheba. He was the byproduct of their adultery, the first son of their marriage. And it says that the Lord loved Solomon and he even moved Nathan the prophet to give him a name, a nickname, Jedidiah, which meant beloved of the Lord. And God loved Solomon, gave Solomon more than he ever gave anyone at any time at all. So I believe part of the reason why God is angry with Solomon here at this time is because Solomon had removed himself from a place where God can show him the kind of love that he was wanting to show to him. He disqualified himself from being able to be blessed by God. Now, God's love doesn't change, and God doesn't remove his love. It's God's love that makes him desire to bless, to use, and to reveal himself, and now he cannot. I never understood this before I was a parent, but now I do. I understand it. We are in the process of building a tree house in the woods in our backyard, you know, and we have all kinds of leftover lumber from things that we tore down and, you know, and we just brought it all back there and we started making this uh, treehouse and there was a, a need for some things that we had to buy for it and I had to go out to the store and spend a little bit more money than I was hoping to spend on this free treehouse that we were going to build in the woods. And when I saw the number come up on the screen, you know, $186 or whatever it was, and I thought, well, it's not Christmas, you know, and it's nobody's birthday. And there's no real reason to do this. But I didn't even blink an eye when it came time to pay that bill. I paid it in full. And here's the reason why I was so delighted to do it. It's because my kids are walking in a way where it's my pleasure as a father to bless them. And I'm confident because of their character and what they demonstrate that my doing that in blessing them is not going to ruin them. And it's not an infrequent thing that I stand with George and we watch our kids doing things that I wasn't allowed to do when I was their age. And we smile and we look and we say, isn't it neat that we can bless them in this way? Because we know it's not going to ruin them. And that's the heart of our Father which is in heaven. And that's why God is upset with Solomon here in this instance, because God wanted what was best for Solomon. He wanted to bless Solomon, but Solomon had removed himself from a place where God could bless him. The other reason that God is angry is because God also loved his people and that as goes the leader, so also goes the nation. And what we're gonna see is that Solomon leading the way into idolatry, that idolatry is going to spill also into the lives of God's people and they are not just going to be cursed in the throne, but they will also be cursed in their life because of the idolatry that they embrace, and God did not want to see that happen. Of all that will follow, and there's a lot that's going to follow this, this is the worst of all the consequences that Solomon suffered, the anger of the Lord. You would think, well, wait, that's not really that big of a deal. I mean, he really hasn't even lost anything yet. It really hasn't cost him much at all. No, it cost him. Because really, when it comes down to it, the only thing that really matters in life is the pleasure of God as he looks upon us. If our lives bring grief to our father, we lose no matter how good we've got it in every other place. And this is the worst situation that Solomon could be in because he's pierced the very heart of God with his behavior. Now, the difference between David, Solomon's father, and and Solomon himself is that when Nathan came to David and gave the charge of the sin and the grief of God because of David's sin, David broke, and David was grieved at the fact that he had offended God. We don't see that here in Solomon at all. In fact, not only does Solomon not respond to God himself coming to him and expressing this displeasure, but Solomon is going to cling with everything he can to everything he has and try to keep it and not lose it uh, in it. A completely different heart now in Solomon than that which was in David, his father. And so the displeasure of God. The second thing that we see these consequences is disqualification of the crown. Notice with me in verse 11. It says, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of you, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Notwithstanding in your days, I will not do it for David, thy father's sake, but I will tear it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit, I will not tear it away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to your son for David, my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. You're going to lose the kingdom, Solomon, but I'm not going to renege on the promise that I made to David that the fruit of his seed will sit on the throne of the kingdom where the promise that I gave through Jacob that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. So for David's sake, for Jerusalem's sake, one tribe of the 12 will remain with your lineage, but the other 10 will go to someone else, your servant, not even your son, but it will go to your servant because of this thing that you have done. Of course, you say, well, wait, that's only 11. There's 10 tribes to, you know, servant one tribe to Solomon where's the 12th the 12th would be the Levites they were kind of like the wild card they they were the priests they didn't have their own land they intermingled without throughout so they don't really count in this whole thing in first Corinthians chapter 9 the apostle Paul is talking about behavior of Christians and how it affects not our earthly kingdom our earthly crown but our eternal place in heaven and the place, that, the crown that God is preparing for us in heaven. And he says this to the church in Corinth. He says, don't you know that they which run in a race run all, or all run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the crown is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now, you understand that if you've ever competed athletically, for a prize, for a trophy, or on a team trying to win a medal or a place or a position, you understand that not only are you training your body to endure the physical abuse of that sport, but you also have to be disciplined in every other area of your life as well. The way that you eat, how much sleep you get, what you do with your spare time, everything kind of funnels into what you're trying to achieve in that mastery that you're seeking or that crown that you're trying to obtain. That's what Paul says. He's temperate or controlled in all things. Now they do it, the athlete, to obtain a corruptible crown. But we, an incorruptible or eternal. Paul says now applying it. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, without purpose, So fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep my body under and I bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. And Paul recognized the importance of who he was as a Christian, a person of God, and how his behavior could either beautify and build up the kingdom of God, or it could tear down and belittle the kingdom of God. And he realized that if my behavior and what I do in my body belittles and tears down the kingdom of God, then I am disqualified from the crown that I would receive. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. He was given the crown of the greatest kingdom that ever existed. And yet he became disqualified from the greater crown that would have awaited him in heaven. One of the things that I believe will amaze each of us when we see Solomon in heaven It's not the glory and splendor that he has, but the lowly and base position that he holds there. I believe he'll be there because God doesn't pull away his love. He keeps it. Solomon was saved, but he was disqualified from his crown. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul says again, he says, Every man's work shall be made known, for the day shall declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, if you turn to that part of the Bible, you could just pencil in the name Solomon right next to that verse, someplace close to the margin. And there's many names Over the years that belong in that verse. In that margin right there. Those that are disqualified from the price. They'll be in heaven. But their reward will be small. Because they didn't live according to to, to the way that God. The question is this. Where will your name be? Will your name be in the margin next to that verse on that day? Uh, Now the heavenly crown is what we're seeking. And what we do with our earthly responsibilities. And if we're faithful in what God has given us. And we honor him with our lives then there's a crown that awaits us in heaven. But a divided heart will lead to disqualification. It's what happens to Solomon. The third uh, consequence that that we see in his life, um, not just the displeasure of God or disqualified from the crown, but also there's division in the kingdom. Is that God said to Solomon that he's gonna tear the kingdom away from him and he's gonna give it to his servant. There's a splintering. Now for you and me, a divided heart will always lead to a divided life. What that means for us is that we have our heart and we give our heart to the Lord and, and, and he's supposed to have all of our life. But oftentimes what we do is we we give the Lord maybe half of our heart or we give the Lord all of our heart. But in time, we begin to take little parts of it back for ourselves. We say, God, you can have this much, but no more. you can have this part of my life, but you can't have this part. Or you can be in these rooms, but you can't have this cupboard or these chambers. This part is mine. And what that is, is a divided heart. And the problem with a divided heart is that part of it is the Lord and part of it is not. And if it's not the Lord, then that part of your life is not going to be blessed, which then leads to the fourth consequence that we see in Solomon's life, and that is adversity. Notice in verse, uh, as we um, look in verse 14, it says, And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, and he was of the king's seed in Edom. Now for all of Solomon's reign from the time that he first assumed the throne all the way up until this time, it's over 20 years, we know that at least, he has had peace in his kingdom. It's the first time Israel has had perfect peace on all of its borders throughout their history until this time. He's never had an enemy. He's never had a challenge. He's never had an uprising or a war. Everything has just been peaceful and calm for Solomon all this time. But now, all of a sudden, there's an adversary that's been raised up by the Lord because of the position that Solomon now finds himself in with a divided heart. Now, the purpose for God's adversity in Solomon's life is not because he's just trying to make his life miserable, but ultimately, adversity from God always has the goal and the aim to bring us back into a unified heart. As that part of our life that's not given to God and therefore is unblessed and therefore brings us trouble and therefore experiences adversity, as we feel the pain of that affliction, it is designed to bring us back to a place where we'll say, God, forgive me for walking in this way that's wayward, from, from being to the left or to the right of what's right in your eyes. Lord, forgive me for keeping this part of my heart back. Take it now and be in my life. If you If you have a headache, and and if, I, I get these from time to time. Anybody else? You know, you know what it's like when you have a headache. Every other part of your life can be great. You could, there could be money in the bank. I mean, you could. Uh, your cars are all working right. Your house is going. Your families are good. Your kids are good. Everything in your life can be great. But if you have a headache, it doesn't matter. You're like, I got a headache. <laughs> I just want to get in my room. I want to shut the, shut the blinds. I need to go to sleep. Give me some ibuprofen and, and just let the world go away. And it doesn't even matter. And see, that's what happens in our lives. When we have a divided heart, then what happens is God brings adversity into one part of our life. And it might be a very small part of our life. But when that adversity is there, it makes every other part of our life hurt because of it. Like a broken toe or anything else. Everything else could be fine. And so God brings it for the sake of bringing us back. In Psalm chapter 86, verse 11, David said these profound words. He said, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. That's a great prayer. Lord, search my heart. Go through every chamber, every room. And if there's any part of it, Lord, that's divided or not surrendered, submitted to you, then Lord, take it and unite my heart to fear your name. Good prayer. Solomon should have done it, but he doesn't. Well, the description of the adversity as Sue's here in verse 15, it says, for it came to pass that when David was in Edom, and Joab, the captain of the host, was gone up to bury the slain after he had smitten every male in Edom. So we're, we're, we're reaching back into history. Remember David? Remember Joab, his general? I know it's been several weeks. It says, but during that time that David sent Joab to Edom, Remember, Hadad hey is an Edomite. It says that, uh, that um, verse 16, for six months did Joab remain there with all Israel until he had cut off every male in Edom. So Joab had gone in, there was an extended campaign, and the idea there was to set them back a full generation, to get them off of Israel's tail. And it worked. But, but verse 17, Hadad hey fled. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, to go into Egypt, Hadad being yet a little child. And they arose out of Midian and they came to Paran and they took men with them out of Paran and they came to Egypt unto Pharaoh king of Egypt, which gave him a house and appointed him victuals or provisions and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him to wife, the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tapanes, the queen. And the sister of Tappanese bear unto him Genubath, his son, whom Tapanese weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So the idea here is that Hadad was brought up in the royal structure of Egypt. He marries Pharaoh's sister-in-law, this woman, uh, Tappanese, we're not told her name, it's the sister of the queen Tapanese, and they have a child whose name was Genubath who was then weaned by the queen herself, the wife of the Pharaoh. And then it says in verse 21 that when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, that is, that he was dead, and that Joab, the captain of the host, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to mine own country. Then Pharaoh said unto him, but what have you lacked with me that, behold, you seek to go to your own country? And he answered nothing. Howbeit, let me go in any wise. I'll tell you what it was. It was that God was stirring up an adversary against Solomon. It was putting it in the heart of Hadad to want to return to Edip, Egypt. Uh, I'm sorry, Edom, for the sake of uh, harassing Solomon. And so Hadad became Solomon's first adversary. Then, in verse 23, that God stirred up him another adversary, Rezan, the son of Eliadah which fled from his lord Hadadezer, the king of Zoba, And so we see God just stirring the pawns of human politics here and raising up adversity for Solomon. And he gathered men unto him and became captain over a band. And when David slew them of Zoba, and they went to Damascus and dwelt therein, and he reigned in Damascus. Now Damascus is in Syria, which is to Israel's north. So Edom is to Israel's south, and then a little bit east across the Dead Sea and down a little ways. And Damascus is in Syria, which is to the north. So we see God beginning to lay the groundwork for Solomon to begin to lose ground and for Israel to to experience a little affliction here uh, because of their idolatry. And it says that he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon beside the mischief that Hadad did, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. And so for the first time now, there's enemies uh, in Solomon's life. And here comes now the third adversary, and this one comes from within. So one to the south, one to the north, and now from within. And it says, and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite, so now an Israelite, of Zareda, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. And so now the the background uh, in in Jeroboam's sight. it says that Solomon built Milo. Milo was the, 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 the wall of defense that went around Jerusalem. It was the protective barrier. And it says that he repaired the breaches in the city of David, his father. And so this is labor. We're talking about those that moved stones, built walls, repaired the city. And it says, and the man Jeroboam, was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man, that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. So the first glimpse that we get of this man Jeroboam is actually a good one. We're told that he's a mighty man of valor, a word, a phrase that's used honorably in scripture for a man. Gideon was a mighty man of valor. There were others. And we also see that he was industrious, that he didn't know that Solomon was watching. But as Solomon saw the man working, he was elevated in his position because he was observed to be a man who was productive. This is a verse that I share with my kids, by the way, all the time. I love this verse when I'm talking to young people uh, and their attitude and their work ethic. It is always do the absolute best job you can with whatever it is that you're putting your hand on because you never know who's watching. He had no idea that he was being observed by Solomon himself and that he would be put in a place of prominence because of his industrious attitude and work ethic. The thing is this. You say, well, nobody notices when I work hard or nobody cares if I work hard. Listen, there's a greater than Solomon who always sees the works that you and I do. And the attitude with which we do the work that we do. And the Bible says this. The promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west or from the north or from the south. But it comes from the Lord. He rises up one and he sets down another. And when God sees someone who works hard, God elevates that person. It's a concept, a precept that holds true from Genesis to Revelation. And just further Bible trivia for you, just you know, for your, for your own uh, understanding pleasure, is this. That God never calls a person into his service, except they are working when they're called in the Bible. Every time you'll see it, they are occupied with something. You know, whether it was, uh, I think it was Amos was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. You, You just go through and you look at everyone. Moses was keeping sheep. Everyone was busy doing what they want. God doesn't call lazy people into his service. So this is an exhortation, I believe, you know, for all of us to be industrious. Well, that's about the only good thing that it says about Jeroboam here. And it is good. He started good, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but it says that Solomon made him ruler over all the house of Joseph. Um, <clears throat> now, th- there is some more significance between the lines to this as Jeroboam will come back into the story again in chapter 12 is he has a position of prominence here among the labor force of Solomon. You remember that he didn't make life easy, even though he made life prosperous. There was a heavy tax that was upon the people, and they had to work long hours. They liked it because they got paid real well. Silver was rocks in the days of Solomon. But... Jeroboam sees firsthand the toil and the pressure that this is putting upon the people and that lays the groundwork for what's going to happen and how he is an adversary to Solomon. And so uh, it's good for you to understand that. Verse 29, it says, it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him in the way and he, that's Jeroboam, had clad himself. Don't you love it? He was wearing a new garment and they too were alone in the field. So Jeroboam goes out. He's wearing this brand new coat. He's proud of it. It's an Armani, which was big in those days in Israel, you know. And he goes out into the field and he comes to see this prophet Ahijah. And Ahijah comes to him and says, hey, that's a great coat. Look at this. Verse 30. It says, and Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give ten tribes to you. Now this is a very interesting instance. Now we read these stories in the Bible and we say, okay, different culture, different time, or disconnect completely from what's real in my life, and we just read it and move on. But put yourself in Jeroboam's shoes for a minute. Here you are, you're essentially the equivalent of a union boss. You got a brand new coat. You go out in the field and you meet a prophet of God. And the prophet of God says, hey, that's a nice coat. Let me see that for a minute. And then he takes it and he tears it up in front of you, right in front, just rips it into 12 pieces. Now, the first question that comes into my mind is, what is this guy, nuts? Why is it that throughout the Bible, you always see prophets doing crazy things? God told Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 180-something days and then to lay on his right side for 360-something days and then to make some bread and mix a little bit of man dung in it. You can read it for yourself and eat it. And there was something behind everything that he did. But we always see in the Bible God having his prophets do crazy things. Why? I'll tell you why. Here's why. So that people will pay attention. See, If Ahijah is a false prophet and God didn't send him and what he prophesies doesn't come to pass, everyone's going to know it because he did something that drew attention to what he was doing. He tore a brand new coat in 12 pieces. But if it does come to pass, then everyone will know that he spoke by the word of the Lord and they'll observe it and pay attention. See, if I come to you and I just say, hey, you know what God told me? You're going to run 10 twelfths four-fifths of the United States of America. You would say, yeah, that's great. Have a nice day. and You'd go on your way. And if it came to pass, you'd forget about our conversation. And one day you'd say, wait, did Nick ever, huh? But if I came to you and I ripped up your clothes and I said, here, take 10 parts, you're going to get 10 parts and, you know, whatever, you'd remember that for the rest of your life. And I believe God has crazy prophets do crazy things for that very reason so that people will pay attention. He wants you to pay attention if someone's a false prophet. So you can brand that person and say, they're nuts, I'm not going to listen to them. But if what they say comes to pass, remember Agabus in the New Testament book of Acts? He took Paul's belt and he tied himself up with it. And he says, thus says the Lord, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. You say, why did you have to do the drama with the belt? Why couldn't you just give the message? Well, hey, we all remember the message because of the drama, right? And so God has prophets do crazy things. Another thing I observe about this Jeroboam guy is that he's elevated without preparation. We see God going to great length throughout the Bible in preparing those whom he's going to call into great service for himself. And those who are not prepared in the crucible of affliction, oftentimes self-destruct very early on. And this is gonna be another one of those instances here. Elevation without preparation leads to disaster. Verse 32, it says, but he speaking of Solomon, shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me. In other words, the reason for this division is because they've forsaken me and they've worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in my eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments as did David, his father. They have given themselves over to idolatry. Now we touched on it last week, but Astrath was the goddess of sexual pleasure and allurement. And she was worshipped in very promiscuous and sexual ways in her temple. Molech and Chemosh were both Gods of, that literally have the equivalent of abortion in our country today. The, the god Molech was a little statue with outstretched arms. And they would literally sacrifice their newborn children to him for the sake of family blessing. It was family planning, planned parenthood kind of a thing and, and that's exactly what that represented in those days and it was abomination unto the lord he said i never have commanded it and i never will ask for it and it was what they were doing sex pleasure uh, it was it was rampant in those days Howbeit, verse 34 i will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand but i will make him prince all the days of his life that solomon for david my servant's sake whom i chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and I will give it to you, even ten tribes. And unto his son, the son of Solomon, will I give one tribe, that will be Judah, the tribe that David came from, that David my servant may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen me to put my name there. And I will take you, and you shall reign according to all that your soul desires, and shall be king over Israel. Again, put yourself in Jeroboam's shoes. What if some prophet came to you and told you that? How would your life change that day? Wow, I'm going to be king over all. All that my heart desires, I'm going to be allowed to do. And he says in verse 38, And it shall be that if you will hearken unto all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, that I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and will give Israel unto you. And I will and I will for this afflict the seed of David, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam and Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt and Shishek, uh, unto Sheshak the king of Egypt and was in Egypt until uh, the death of Solomon. There's two interesting um, things I see about this man, uh, Jeroboam, here that I think are worthy of of mentioning to you. First of all is this. I I, I see Jeroboam as the picture of the everyday person who is essentially a nobody, but that God offers a position of great honor and prestige. I mean, really, who's Jeroboam? We, We never hear about his family or his lineage or anything about him ever. What we see here is that God is offering to him the same exact promise and honor that he was going to bestow upon David and his seed forever. He said back in verse 38 that if you hearken to my commandments and walk in my ways, then I will be with you like I was with David and I will build for you a sure house. The same exact promise that God gave to David, he now gives to this guy and here's the condition. Walk in my ways, keep my commands and honor me. And that encourages me. Because sometimes I think, well, I'm not the son of Billy Graham, you know, and I don't have this great heritage in the Lord. And I mean, I'm kind of a first generation Christian, uh, kind of stumbling my way through life in the kingdom of God. What could God ever do with me? But here's the answer, is that if you will simply honor God with your life, give yourself a united heart or give to him a united heart for him to fill and to use, God can do with you as much as as he did with David or Abraham or Moses or anybody else ever. What he's looking for is a heart that is completely committed to him. And he is absolutely unlimited in what he can do for you beyond that. The Bible says in Second Chronicles that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those whose heart is completely towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. Right now, the eyes of God are upon the congregation right here, right now. And all he's looking for is a heart that's completely committed to him, that will walk in his ways. And there's absolutely no limit to what God can do with your life. The other thing I see in in, um, Jeroboam here is in this, that he is a great picture of our country. Now, this is not the intent of the text. God didn't put Jeroboam here so that we would see United States of America, but I see the application in this very thing. I mean, if you think about it, really, who is the United States of America? I mean, you look in the scripture and you see how God called Abraham and he said, I'm going to make a great nation of you and then he brought him through his whole life waiting for the promise of a son and then he raised up Isaac and Jacob and then they, the 12 tribes and then he brought them to Egypt and he prepared them and then raised up Moses and brought them out of Egypt and they went through Canaan they go to Sinai, they get the law I mean they have this incredible heritage and preparation and God gives them these incredible promises he says that they'll be admired by all nations that they'll be the head and not the tail that they'll be prospered and kept that none of the diseases that afflict the other nations will come upon them that they will lend and not borrow and he says this is who you're going to be the the, the world is going to look at you Israel and they're going to say what nation is like this and what God is like this that gives these commands and these precepts to these people and God built that nation up and then he called David and then he called Solomon and here they are at this apex of glory in this place right here they turned from the Lord they threw it all away And now, fast forward into the future. You have a few people that flee tyrannical governments in Europe and they come to a new world. And they build a constitution seeking to honor the precepts and the principles of God. No preparation. There's no Abraham. There's no covenant. There's no Moses. There's no Egypt. They come and they say, hey, we've got God's word. And we want to form a government that gives place to God. Form one nation under God. And God takes a nation that's committed to elevating him and honoring his principles. And he takes us further than he ever took Israel, even in their glory days. We were the nation that was admired by all nations. That was the head and not the tail, the leaders among the nations of the world. We're the nation that's been prospered and kept throughout history, the last history at least. We've been the the healthiest nation per capita of all the nations. None of these diseases. We historically until these days have been the lender and not the borrower. The prospered among the nations. And who are we that we should deserve the grace that God has shed upon our country? We're nobody. We are Jeroboam in a sense. Now God did not replace Israel. I'm not saying that. Don't say, I'm preaching replacement that we are the... New. No, I'm not saying that. God said, Jeremiah, very clearly, that if the sun and the moon cease to exist, then Israel will cease to exist from being a nation before me forever. But Here's what I'm saying. Is that God has blessed our nation because our nation has blessed God. And our nation has also turned from God. And just as the Israelites turned to Ashtoreth, the goddess of lust and sex, and the gods Chemosh and Molech and Milcom, our nation has fallen after the same pattern. And in my opinion, the same destiny that happens to Jeroboam is also going to be the destiny of our country because of how we have turned from the Lord. We, right now, I hope you know this, are in a free fall as a nation. Did you know that? We're in a free fall. We are falling right now. Now, if you drop something out of an airplane, It falls 9.8 meters per second. That's a scientific fact. That's how fast things fall as they are dropped because of gravity. Everything falls 9.8 meters per second. The only differential is how high the airplane is falling. That's the only thing that makes any difference in terms of how long it will take for it to hit the ground. We are free falling right now. And we were high up when that fall began. I believe that the only recourse that we have as a country right now, should we avert disaster, is not new political structure, not politicians that will change things around economically. We need to fall on our face as a country and repent before Almighty God for the idolatry and the false worship and God can heal our land. If my people, God says, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will come and heal their land, God says. And that's the only hope that our country has at this point. And God can still do it. Will it happen? I don't know. The final consequence, oh, by the way, Solomon, verse 40, sought to kill Jeroboam. Do you see the difference between Solomon and David? See, David... When Absalom came, when his other son usurped, David didn't try to keep the throne for himself. He said, the will of the Lord be done. But Solomon here seeks to kill Jeroboam, and thus Jeroboam arose. He goes to Egypt, and he stays in Egypt until the death of Solomon. The final consequence in Solomon's fall here is death when he should have kept living. Look at verse 41. It says, in the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, Are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Now, that's an interesting book. I think that would be an interesting read. It's not in the Bible. certainly wasn't inspired or else it would be. And you say, well, where is this book and why is it lost? I think it's lost on purpose. And here's why. Because I don't think we needed another book to tell us about a gold monkey or, you know, another golden chariot or how many more horses or stalls or anything else that Solomon did. God says that that can die with Solomon. And it says, in the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, again, another text you can read over, you say, 40 years, that's a good run. But don't forget, he was between 15 and 20 years old when he began to reign. So that puts him between 55 and 60 years old when he dies. That's young. Do you remember when God first came to Solomon and he said, ask what you will and I'll do it for you. And Solomon said, God, I pray for a hearing heart, an understanding heart that I may know how to discern good and evil before this people. Who is able to judge such a great people as you? So give me wisdom, God. That's my prayer. And it says that the saying pleased God in that Solomon didn't ask for riches or the life of his enemies or for long life. So God replied and he said, I have heard and I have granted what you've asked for. And because you asked for wisdom and not for money, he says, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you riches and honor as well. But then God said this, however, if you walk before me and keep my commandments and my statutes, like David, your father did, then you will have a long life and you will enjoy the blessing that I've given to you. Here we see that Solomon did not have that long life. He turned away from the commandments of the Lord and he died young for it. We don't know what took his life. We just know uh, that it happened uh, in in this thing, that he died when he should have kept living. What's the takeaway as we depart from Solomon? Um, We spent a few weeks looking at him and observing. I don't know about you, but Solomon is kind of a hero for me. Not because of the way he finished, but kind of the way that he ran for a while. He's one of those guys that I look at and say, God, if you could give me some wisdom like you gave for Solomon. We still use his proverbs today. We still pray, God, give me the wisdom of Solomon in this situation. What's the takeaway at the end of Solomon's life? A couple of things if you want to write these down. Number one, beware of mistaking knowing for doing. Solomon had wisdom, so much so that the whole world sought for it. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs, of which we only have a couple of hundred recorded for us in the Scriptures. His wisdom and his knowledge excelled any that ever lived ever, but he didn't obey the wisdom and the knowledge that he had. He knew it, but he didn't do it. He didn't obey his own wisdom. And and we have to be aware of this in our own lives because human nature has a tendency to think that because we know something that therefore we are automatically doing it or that because we know something, we're protected from the consequences of doing it. Or that we can control the consequences of what we're doing. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul talks about believers in the last days. And he describes them this way. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. That outwardly, everything that they profess... And inwardly, everything that they know professes or reflects that they're walking with God. They can quote scripture. You'll see their parking their car in the parking lot at church on Sunday. You'll hear spiritual things come out of their mouth. They'll honor God with the way that they speak. They have a form of godliness, but it says that they deny the power of it, meaning they don't employ the power that God gives us through his spirit to obey the things that he's called us to do. If you have a flashlight by your bedside at night and the power goes out, and you grab that flashlight and you start walking through your house, but you never turn the flashlight on, what you've done is you have a form of illumination, but you're denying the power of it. You have the ability to see and to not stumble, but you're not turning it on. You're walking in darkness, even though you could be walking in the light. And There's many believers that that's the condition of their heart. They have a form of godliness. There's a profession. There's an attendance to the things of God. There's even an agreement with the things of God, but they never employ the power of the spirit to live the crucified life. To crucify the flesh with its affections and its lusts. To not walk after the world and the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. To love their enemies and to love their neighbor as they love themselves. They don't do the things that God's given them to do, to put to death the sins and the affections of the heart. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. He had a form of godliness, but he denied the power. Number two is beware of pride. And that is thinking that the gifts and the calling that God has set upon you put you above the vulnerabilities of common men. See, Solomon began to believe that. Well, that because I'm so prestigious and so rich and so wise, the rules just don't apply to me. No, no, no. The wages of sin is death. That's universal. And if you deny God, you will fall, no matter how wise, no matter how rich, no matter how called or how respected you are. It's all very frail. Number three is beware of justifying disobedience. If you read Solomon's sin, you'll see that he had a good reason for every single thing that he did. Something that benefited the nation or that in some way exalted Israel, but yet it was in very nature rebellion against God, but he could justify it. And here's the problem when you begin to justify disobedience. Number one is that once you learn how to justify disobedience, that's all you'll ever do. You'll be very good at making excuses. And then problem number two is that you open yourself up unto incremental falling. Little by little, Satan will take more and more ground in your life until you eventually fall. There are three entities that will ruin any human being if they all come together at the same time. They will ruin you, and here's what they are. Number one is temptation. Number two is desire. And number three is opportunity. And if those things come together in your life at the same time, that can be a disaster. Solomon lived in a place where temptation, desire, and opportunity all came together. Many of us, God is gracious enough to never let that happen or to seldom let that happen. Temptation, desire come together, but there's no opportunity. Or opportunity is there. And temptation comes, but it's not met with desire by God's grace for whatever reason. But when those three happen, it's a disaster. God keep us from falling after the way of Solomon. Now, all of this is great, but it still leaves me with two questions. First question is this, how does this happen? I mean, I look at all of this, we've looked at Solomon, we've seen the rise, the fall, the beginning, the glory, the end. How does this happen, and why does this happen so often? Doesn't this happen in our world all the time, that people that have been given so much that have so much opportunity, so much talent, so much gifting. People look at them and want to be them, and we see those people self-destruct. Why does it happen? And I don't really know you know, exactly why, but, but, but here's my, my guess, if I could throw my best guess at why this happens and why this happens in Solomon. is That when you are gifted, or when you are wealthy, or when you're influential, or when you have something like Solomon did, the whole world wants what you have. I mean, put it in the context of today's celebrities. I mean, people want to know what's going on in the lives of celebrities. That's why they watch gossip TV and reality TV and read magazines and periodicals and see things online about, you know, what Snoop Dogg is doing. And they want to know. They have to know what happened. You know, and people just want this thing. And here's why. It's because they have something that most of the world wants whether it's money or fame or influence or power. And so people will flock to those that have it because they want it for themselves. And so if I could just maybe see what they're doing or hear what they're saying or do what they do, then maybe I could have what they have or be what they are or experience that life, whatever it might be. But what happens is that the person who's sitting in that seat of riches or prestige or authority or you know prominence, that person realizes that they're just like everyone else. See, when they go home at night with all of their money and their influence and their fame and their prestige, they're sick of themselves. They open up the news and they have to read about themselves and they they realize, wait, I have all this. Everyone wants to be me, but I'm just like everyone else. But they can't let everyone know that they're just like everyone else, so then they have to put on the pomp and they have to do the whole thing and it becomes extremely heavy to live that way and i believe that that happened to solomon to some degree is that everybody wanted to be the wisdom of solomon everyone wanted to be solomon and solomon didn't even want to be solomon anymore i think four of the most powerful words in the old testament were written by solomon maybe even some of the most powerful words in all the bible they're written and uh, they're found in the book of ecclesiastes And it's after Solomon had acquired everything that he wanted and he had tried with everything he had to satisfy himself with things that he could acquire or experience. And it's Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, the first four words, he said this. He said, therefore, I hated life. A man who sought to fill himself with everything that he could came to a point at the end of it all where he said, therefore, I hated life. And Here's the reason why he hated life. is because he was seeking life in things where life cannot be found. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. See, life is never experienced in the things that we acquire or in the positions that we hold. Or what we have those things always leave us empty and they leave our soul stretched out there's only one thing that truly satisfied and that's a relationship with the true and living God through the person of his son that satisfies it's not a religion he knows us he walks with us he satisfies he lifts us up he does things through us and in us that we could never do for ourselves and so, uh, you know, it happened to Solomon. The other question this leaves me with is this, is that if Solomon, the wisest one that ever lived, couldn't do it, then how can I? If Solomon fell, then how am I expected to stand? And here's my answer to that, is that maybe it takes just a little bit less wisdom than Solomon had to make it. Doesn't the Bible say that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the mighty, the weak things of the world to bring to nothing the things that are, that our faith would stand in the glory of God and not in the wisdom of men. He uses our weakness and the weak things of the world to abase the great. God's will for our lives is to lift us up and then to keep us up. You don't have to be the wisest person in the world to be lifted up and stay up. It's so incredibly simple. You read what Moses said to Joshua, what David said to Solomon. You read what Paul wrote to Timothy and he says, it's very simple. Listen, keep God's word, walk in his ways, meditate in his truth, love the Lord with all your heart and you're going to do great. That's what it says in every single instance. It is so incredibly simple to succeed in the Christian life. If you want an assignment that will bless you, Read Job chapter 28. Read it carefully and read it slowly. It's a parable, it's an allegory, it's a, it's a it's contained, it's a self-contained segment there in the middle of the book of Job. But I'll give you the last verse of it because it's the key to success in life. It's this, Job 28:28. 28, 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. It's that simple. Fear God Depart from evil. You're going to do great. It doesn't take a genius. In fact, sometimes it's too much. In conclusion, we'll get into chapter 12 next week. In the days prior to Israel's fall, God sent many prophets to them to warn them of what was coming. They were in a free fall. They were going to hit the ground. They were getting close. But at the same time, there were false prophets that were prophesying peace. They were saying, ah, God's not going to judge. Things will just continue as they're going on and on and on. I believe that we right now currently are in the last days. The Bible says in the last days, there'll be perilous times. Jesus said concerning the last days that many deceivers would come and that many would be deceived. And he said, take heed that you are not deceived. And I believe that more than ever for you and I in the days that we are living in, and God only knows what's coming tomorrow or next week or next month is that the most important thing that we can have right now is a unified heart presented to the Lord daily. Is that God, unite my heart to fear your name. The religion of Satan has been, from the beginning of time, you can do it by yourself. That will be his religion all the way into the the tribulation and the Antichrist, is that you can do it by yourself. You don't need God. Independent. You won't surely die. You'll know good and evil and you will be as God, Satan said. You don't need God. Do it independent of God. And if Satan can get us to live our lives in independence of God, not trusting in him, then we're on our way to being deceived. The problem with his lie is that the wages of sin is death. And you can't remove your own sin. No matter what you do, no matter how strong the intellect of man ever is, you will never be able to remove your own sin. And as long as you can't remove your own sin, you're done. Because you cannot violate God's law that the wages of sin is death. We cannot live independent of God. We need a unified heart. As we close uh, tonight, you know, I I, um, just want to give you a chance to kind of um, respond to this. Maybe you here tonight are here and you're in a place where you say, you know, there is a division within my heart. There's areas of my life that aren't given over to God and and I need to to get those right before the Lord. And so I just want to pray for you as we close in prayer. I'll begin by praying for you. Father, I just pray tonight, Lord, for each one of us here, Lord, and if each one of us could see the condition of our heart, Lord, we would probably drop dead right here. Many of us, Lord, we think that we're completely surrendered, and in those moments that you graciously lift the veil and let us see what's truly going on, Lord, we see that the truth is altogether different than that. And so tonight, Lord, collectively, and yet as individuals, we offer this prayer to you, and we say, Lord, search us and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there would be any wicked way in us. And then lead us in the way that's everlasting. Father, we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. That every part of our life would be consecrated to you. And that we could walk in the simplicity of fearing God, of departing from evil. And that we might finish this race well. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being called by your name. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We pray, God, that you would pour out upon us. We pray for our nation, Lord. We ask that you would keep us, Lord, from the disaster that's pending. Father, that you would turn the hearts of our leaders and of our citizens back to you again. Your word says that when the Spirit has come, that he will convict and convince the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. We pray, Lord, that you would knock on hearts. We pray that you would bring people to a place where they know that they need the true and the living God. So we ask for an awakening in our country, Lord. We pray you'd start with each one of us, Father. And So Lord, have our hearts tonight. Do your will within us. We thank you, Lord, for this place, for this calling. We thank you for the safety that we have in your Son. May we walk in it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great grace and your great kindness that you give to us. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.